So how much did it cost you to make that music video? It ended up costing 10 grand. If I had known that, I wouldn't have done it. And it wasn't until about February that I kind of, it almost felt like waking up after a dream and, you know, watching my savings account go down basically to zero. And I was like, I'm going to upload this video to YouTube. It's going to get a million views. And I knew that that video would bring in maybe a hundred bucks. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, how Jack Conti's frustration with the music business led him to launch Patreon, a crowdfunding platform where fans can support and connect with creators for just a few dollars a month. At some point, you might get tired of hearing me say that every great business idea often starts as a problem in need of a solution. But one reason I keep coming back to this is the sheer, almost stupid simplicity of it. Like, it's an equation you could explain to a six-year-old. Frustration equals idea equals action equals solution. Think about Jamie Siminoff, who worked out of his garage. He needed to see who was at the front door when the doorbell rang to decide whether to get up and open the door or stay put. So he built a video doorbell for himself. And then he turned it into a business called Ring. Melissa Butler couldn't find bold and bright lipstick colors, so she created her own and then turned that idea into a business called The Lip Bar. Mike Radenbaugh had to bike 17 miles to high school, so to make that journey easier, he turned his bike into an electric bike. And that idea eventually became Rad Power Bikes. And Jack Conti's problem? It was a problem that, at first glance, doesn't seem that problematic. Back in 2009, he and his then-girlfriend, now-wife, Natalie, formed a band called Pomplamoose. And in September of that year, they released a cover version of Beyonce's Single Ladies, and they made a video to go with it. This video got millions of views, and their YouTube channel blew up. They were doing media interviews and selling some of their music on iTunes. So you're probably wondering, what was the problem? Well, having lots of followers and viewers doesn't necessarily translate into a sustainable business, especially after all the middlemen take their cut. So Jack set out to solve this problem, and he wondered, is there a way for artists to make their art in a sustainable way without a big record label or publisher or studio backing them? And the answer he came up with is Patreon. Patreon is a platform that connects artists with their most passionate fans, fans who willingly pay a monthly subscription to support their favorite artists. Since its launch in 2013, Patreon has attracted about 200,000 creators, including some names that you might know, like YouTuber Jackson Bird or the musician Beardy Man or the podcast Chapo Trap House. But mostly, Patreon helps support people you've never heard of. 
ukulele teachers, graphic artists, film reviewers, science fiction writers, fantasy footballers. And that's sort of how its creators, Jack Conti and Sam Yam, envisioned it. For starters, both Sam and Jack had creative instincts from very early on. Jack grew up in the Bay Area, where he was fascinated with puppetry and loved making his own animations. Sam grew up in Pittsburgh, where he worked as a waiter at his parents' Chinese restaurant and actually really loved programming his calculator. And from a young age, both of them were also really into music. Sam played classical piano, and Jack started out playing jazz. In fact, their mutual love of music might be why they were paired up as roommates when they started their freshman year at Stanford in 2002. Here's Jack. I think it was just one of those relationships that uh, that was relatively, I mean, at least, Sam, my recollection, it was like easy. Like it doesn't, it didn't take a lot of work. Hmm. We It just kind of, it just kind of worked. Yeah, I, I think we also sort of had a very easygoing humor to, to us uh, that we found maybe some of the, the same macabre type things funny and uh, the same friend groups uh, that, that you eventually brought over, uh, I think really resonated with me too. So what, what were you guys studying in college? Um, Jack, let's start with you. I studied music. You know, my whole life I'd been on the, the arts had kind of been like the side thing, but I was on the, you know, the science and math kind of track um, growing up. And um, I loved physics in high school. I, I thought I wanted to be a physics major when I got to college. And then uh, I remember getting to this, like the next level of physics and I was sitting in a class and I think movies often show you like one moment of realization and life is rarely like that. Life is usually like a slow burn, but this was really one moment of realization for me sitting in this physics class where I was like, this is not what I want to do. And, um, I, I just, I was just thinking about songs. I was thinking about my music theory class. I was thinking about other things and that's where my brain was going and I didn't want to do physics. And I, I remember like sitting on a bench after that physics class for probably 45 minutes. I just sat there and just thought about what that meant for me. Cause I was, I was, it was kind of a, one of those moments in college that feels pivotal, you know? Mm. So Jack, you were studying music and Sam, what were you studying? Yeah, I, I came into to Stanford, not really knowing, uh, to be honest, um, ended up studying computer science. Uh, honestly, I played a lot of video games as a child and then I was into computers. All right, so you are doing computer science, and Jack, you're doing music, and um, I'm just curious, did, did at any point in college, did the two of you sit around and start to kind of mull over the possibility of starting a business together or anything like that? Was that ever a conversation you ever had? Never. Never. And Sam did start businesses. Sam, you were doing that In-N-Out delivery thing. In-N-Out Burgers? <laughs> I, I was, I was, yeah, yeah. It was awesome. You were <laughs> driving In-N-Out Burgers for people? I created a website. I was driving burgers around and to campus. This is, that was my senior year in particular. Pre-DoorDash. Sure, yeah. That I would love to take that credit. <laughs> you would take orders for burgers, drive to the burger place, and then deliver them to dorm rooms? <laughs> yeah, to, to individuals. It wasn't super well thought out. It, again, just, you know, riffing on ideas here. Yeah. Sammy, why are you ashamed of this? This was an awesome business, man. It was so cool. It was a big deal. Like, everybody knew about yeah, yeah. it. It was one of those you things. You just mark up the burgers. I think he's worried he's going to get sued by In-N-Out Burgers <laughs> for, for what he did in 2004 or for whatever, five. 
but I will say this. I don't think it's a great idea because a, a delivered burger is just not – you have to eat a burger right off the grill. Like it, once it gets – it's in a car. It's in a box. It gets soggy. You get it to your house. It's not the same thing. I totally hear you. Yeah. Also, the, the shock every time, every night that I would go to In-N-Out and order like 100 burgers or something and then how they would have to hold up for everyone else in line, not a good feeling. So, Not a good yeah. feeling. All right, so you've got this burgeoning entrepreneurial business. Um, and, and Jack, were you like, was any part of your mind in college about business or were you really just focused on music? No, I, I don't think I was thinking about business at all. I was, um, I was a part of the film society at school and so, and I, and I was also, um, there was a recording studio on campus. And so I was learning how to use a recording studio. And I was also, you know, because I was part of the film study, I was making movies. So I would make, you know, a few movies a year and I would do soundtracks for other people and for myself. So I was, you know, I, I was a music major. And then, you know, in the, in the cracks, I was doing music and film um, and, and all that kind of stuff. I was not building businesses. Hmm. All right. So, so you guys both graduate in 2006, and and Sam, I guess you you go to work for your the, like the first of, of many startups, um, and it was called Looped, um, and and I guess it was like a, an early way to, to to share your cell phone's location. Yeah. Um, what what happened to that startup? Looped ended up getting acquired. Um, mm-hmm. I I was there for about three years. Uh, my takeaway from it. Um, like early on, I was really interested because of the founders, uh, particularly uh, Sam Altman, uh, who was the CEO oh, wow. there. Later, I became president of, of Y Combinator. And we had a whole bunch of other impressive folks there. And I think just being around that talent felt very energizing. So Sam, you um, kind of go off into this tech direction. And Jack, I guess you kind of begin to pursue music. You formed a band with your then girlfriend, who is now actually your wife, I think, right? Natalie. Yeah, we started a, a band uh, called Pomplamoose. And, and even before then, I, I had started using YouTube and, and uploading to YouTube. And um, it kind of it, it like felt like something was working. So I'd, I'd put up a video and get a few thousand views. And what were the videos of? Me in my bedroom playing instruments. <laughs> and so I would... Listen, people put videos up uh, opening baseball card packs yeah. today. So, I mean... Yeah. Yeah. I, I would... Um, I guess what the videos kind of became was the video version of a song. I called them video songs because was, there were sort of two rules. It was in, inspired by the, the sort of dogma filmmaking from the 70s. And like the, the rules were, if you hear the instrument in the mix, if there's an instrument in the mix, you're going to get to see it. Oh, uh, yeah. You have to play it, right? Yeah. It's like all direct sound and yeah, that kind of thing. And I just, I really liked the idea of taking some of the mystery out of audio production because it really feels like magic when you listen to a record. You know, you there's all these sounds you have no idea how they're made it just you know it it feels like these people are geniuses just creating things and there's at least for me it felt like there was this gap between like where they are and where I am and and I just liked I liked the kind of transparency of YouTube I liked that it felt like behind the scenes and I liked the idea of um, kind of showing people like hey this is how sounds are made and here's what it looks like and it doesn't have to be super glamorous like you can be in your pajama pants on the floor of your bedroom uh, playing a guitar through a shitty amp that you got you know on sale at, at Guitar Center. And what kind of music was it, by the way? It was like hardcore <laughs> um, rock, 
Like aggressive, intense, like electric wow. rock. Yeah. And people, yeah, there's a market for that. Yeah. And so I graduated and started working on music and it you know, felt like it was working. I would sell a few hundred bucks of MP3s. I used a site called eJunkie. Um, so I would put up my MP3s for sale on, on this platform. And were people buying them? Yeah, I, yeah, I was sell. I was making a couple hundred bucks a month, and I was, I, I thought like, oh, okay, this could, this could turn into, you know, a, an income stream, and I could do this full time. It was the first time in my life that I felt like that would be possible. I remember like going back to that moment in college, you know, when I made the decision to become a music major. It was actually like a very depressing moment for me. Um, like I, I was committing in my mind, I was committing to a life of poverty. My uncle is a guitar player, a jazz guitar player. And he, you know, when I told him I was going to do this, he was like, Jack, the thing he said to me was like, don't do it. He was like, you can do anything else in your life. You're a smart guy and, and you can do anything else. He said, don't do this. It's crowded at the bottom is what he said. Wow. But I mean, you, you have this band going at the time. Yeah, we got the band going when we posted a YouTube video on my channel. At first, we, we didn't call it a band. We just posted a video on my channel. We said, hey, this is me and Natalie collabing. And, and what were you? What was the video? It was it was just the two of us with a song that she wrote called Pas Encore. It was mostly in French. Because Pamplemousse, of course, is mm-hmm. fruit in French. And that comes from her because she grew up in France and Belgium. I got it. Okay. Yeah. And what was funny was, you know, we kind of tempered each other. Like we we mitigated each, each other's extremes. So like she calmed down my kind of industrial screamo side and I kind of upped up some of the softness of it. And the the combo was just it was cool and, and different and like it had some of my aggressive production, but then she has this very soft voice and I think it was just kind of different sounding and people seemed to really like it. And so, you know, the idea was let's see if we can make a living out of this. And and right around that time iTunes came out and so we started putting our our music on on iTunes. This is original music. Original music. Yep. You know, we knew that that was kind of what we wanted to do and so we we just and, and YouTube seemed like it was working, so we just started making more and more videos and putting those out. How did you get attention on YouTube? Um, it, eventually, we produced a record for this singer-songwriter named Julia Nunes, and I was super inspired by Julia because she just had this huge presence on YouTube, and I learned that it came from covers originally. Um, ah, and she would from put cover, out covering big, like well-known songs. Yeah, because which which anybody can do, right? Which it's, anybody can no, do. Yep. Yeah, and and that's kind of when I learned that YouTube is a search engine, and so people are searching for songs that they know, and if they then see a cool band who is singing that song, but maybe in a completely different way with a completely different sound, and they've ripped out the harmony and put in their own harmony and ripped out the beat and put in their own beat and done it in three four instead of four four or whatever it is, you can kind of get introduced to a new sound. Um, because you're coming from search traffic and that single thing is how we ended up like growing the band so quickly. So what was the first uh, cover that you put on YouTube? It was, I think the first cover was my favorite things. We ended up doing it in, uh, in five, four and did a cool arrangement of it. And, and, but that wasn't the one that hit. The one that hit was when we covered Beyonce's single ladies. Oh yes. I remember that. Well, yes. We happened. We, we knew that it was going to have a good shot at the VMAs because it was such a great video and a great song. And when she was up for, for, you know, best yeah. music video. And so we, we, we covered the, the song and, and kind of just in time and put it out that night. And then Kanye 
did that thing where he got up at the VMAs and when Taylor Swift won. Yes, and interrupted her, and it became this huge like internet meme, and just got tons of traffic, and the video just exploded. Because people were searching single ladies. Yeah. I think that video today has about 11 million views. It does, yeah. And you guys, and I've seen the video, obviously, and uh, it's it's you guys like in, in like a bedroom, right? Like, yeah, it was my childhood bedroom. Like that's what it is. It's people in a room playing instruments, synced up with the audio. And like, it's funny because in 2020, that's really nothing special. But but at the time, nobody was really doing that kind of thing. Like music videos looked like music videos. They looked like yeah. MTV. And to see like humans in their bedroom playing instruments and having it actually sound good was you know it was a little it was different so that video blows up and did did you start to get contact i mean i should say that you were i know you were on npr that around that time because i was the host of weekend all things considered and and, and there was a weekend when i wasn't i was like on vacation and and you guys and sadly i wouldn't wasn't able to interview but you guys were featured on the show so did you guys get a lot of a lot of calls we did we we um I mean, that was kind of the beginning of when Pomp Loops really started to take off. And, you know, we got calls from managers. We got calls uh, from, you know, press. And, you know, that when we came out with our second, like, big one that kind of really took off, which was Telephone by Lady Gaga, um, you know, we had a we released a record. And, you know, at the end of the month, we logged into our bank account and, like, we had sold 30,000 songs. And because we hadn't wow. signed with a label, we owned all our own masters and therefore we owned all the royalties. So we, we logged in our bank account at 22,000 bucks in it wow which like coming out of call like after selling That's just like, itunes that's just people paying 99 cents for your song on itunes just itunes twenty two thousand wow. bucks in one month and like I, that was when i was like oh my like I, I thought this we can do it like this this could be a thing and did did you start to get record labels contacting you saying hey um you guys interested in talking to us we did yeah we didn't get like hard offers from anybody but we started to go down to LA and talk with them and um and we we basically decided not to do that but we did we did talk with them and entertain it um we just didn't want to go that route I mean you know at that point we're making a living um you know when we started doing label conversations we were making you know thousands and thousands of dollars per month we were going on tour we were you know reaching millions of people where were you we were performing in front of like Big audiences? Yeah, 500 to 1,000 people. Wow. So, I mean, not like, you know, we're not playing Staples Center, <laughs> but like... That's still pretty great. Yeah, I mean, when I grew up, like, I, I thought, like, maybe one day I'll play for 100 people. You know, like, that was like, <laughs> that would have been the coolest thing. And then here we are playing these clubs, you know, for... Like, we played Fillmore, you know, in, in San Francisco, yeah. which is 1,200 people. It was magic. It was the best thing ever. Sam, while all this was happening with Jack and Natalie... You're grinding away in some tech job, and you're watching these guys become like massive YouTube stars. Was that was like everyone from your your year at at Stanford, like people you knew, like talking about them? Like, oh my God, you see Jack Conti's like got this YouTube video. It's got 11 million views. I mean, yeah, the, the I admired Jack, right? Like the from my own personal experience, I loved art too, but I could never take on both that risk or even bridge the connection of how I could make that like a livelihood or, or part of my life. And so seeing him be so successful uh, down that path was was so impressive. And I remember every time that we, we would catch up uh, after college, I, I was just fascinated by what was going on with his life and, and how things were going on there. Meantime, Sam, you had left. Um, you, you had left your the first startup you worked for and went on to 
found your own startup um, called AdWorld. What what was AdWorld? Yeah, um, I mean, thinking back on it, a lot of this was was quite boring. But uh, uh, this was during the area uh, when the iPhone was getting really popular, and yep. a lot of uh, yeah developers were creating their own games and, and whatnot. And in fact, uh, my co-founder and myself at that time were also making these iPhone games and, and applications. And there was a lot of good money in advertising in that. Uh, I know we created like this virtual pet game that ended up uh, gathering actually millions uh, of users at the time. Uh, and we were seeing a few thousand dollars come through and just uh, ads being clicked on. And so uh, AdWorld was just an effective way for these mobile developers to monetize that. So you, from what, I, from what I've read, you guys basically start this business in early 2009. And by the end of the year, you're acquired by a different company. Is that, I mean, to me, that sounds like a great deal, but I, I can't even imagine you were up and running that, like, really by that point, or were you? It happened pretty quickly, uh, like just the explosion of, of even interest in this space, I think. Like there was a whole flood of developers um, who, it was almost like a, a gold rush in a lot of ways, because uh, mm. you had the iPhone and, and this new app store and anyone could start making games and get it distributed to millions of users. Um, and so when uh, there was this interest in what we were doing, I think we were also caught off guard in some sense and then also immediately sold the company <laughs> that same year was did you sell the company because it was just like an offer you couldn't refuse like you were just offered all this money and you, you were just like oh my god we gotta take this it wasn't all this money but i think it was more than we had uh, made you know independently previously than that so the fact that it was a company that we knew to be very large in the space it was a company called AdMob, and then literally the, the month afterwards we were acquired into google um, yeah, AdMob was acquired for like $750 million by Google. Right, exactly. And to be clear, that was not your money. You did not get $750 million from Google. <laughs> uh, no, we did not get seven hundred. That would be <laughs> okay if that happened. But um, we were part of, of AdMob at the time they were acquired. In. And so it, it felt like an appealing opportunity to, to be part of something that was going to win. All right, so your business was acquired and and you moved on. And, and you actually went to um, to the incubator... Uh, called Dogpatch Labs, where I guess your goal was to presumably to, to come up with, with like a new idea. Yeah. I mean, I had a, f a few different things, but uh, at this point, I just wanted to, to start building again. Mm -hmm. So within those few years, I built a number of things. I think this was sort of enlightening for myself too. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, I, I view those years as like the years of struggle because I was there at the incubator. Uh, I was working across the table from Kevin Systrom, who's building Instagram at that time. And we would come in. Um, I, I remember actually having a bunch of chats with Mikey and, and Kevin about what they were thinking about with their business. And uh, all of that's really exciting, I think, uh, as you all feel like you're in this shared suffering together until, you know, something like Instagram skyrockets. Yeah. And then you realize that that they're, they're in a separate space. Yeah. No one's suffering. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, all right. So you're coming, you're trying to come up with a bunch of different ideas. And when you say building things, like just you'd have an idea and you start to try and build it, like code it. Yeah. I, I would code design launch 
And this was during the time too where TechCrunch Disrupt was a thing. So you had this、mm-hmm. idea that if you got a business through and you could launch on stage, that would be making it. And so、uh, I had launched a business in that area.、Uh, it was a company called Champon, but we effectively allowed people to create their own Groupons. So it was a white labeling、hmm. service, and it was interesting. Like the whole group buying space was sort of a.、Uh, Coincidentally, a flash in the pan too. In many ways, although Groupon is still around,、um, and the takeaway for me was just how difficult and how、uh, how much I should treasure if I ever had the, the the good fortune of of landing on a business that really resonated with like a community or, or a group of people.、Um, and so, most of that my years during this time was、uh, as I. Recall just full of a lot of loneliness and、uh, development by by myself in my bedroom.、Hmm. Um, I, I want to go back to Jack for a moment.、Um, so, Jack, just like I'm trying to understand, while Sam is working in the startup space, you, I mean, you're making music with Pablo Moose, right? Yeah. And and at, at your peak, I'm just curious how like how much money were you guys making? We did about four hundred thousand dollars in a year off of MP3 sales, basically. Wow. And, and it was, I think that that year in particular, I think was 2010. Most of it was singles. A lot of it was licensing and and brand deals.、Um, and we had a we had a lawyer that we had brought on very early on, who was you know helping us negotiate these deals and work with,、um, you know, work with brands.、Um, and we're very, you know, we're we're both like music nerds and and artists, but、um, but we we absolutely were thinking about like. Turning this into a you know a sustainable thing, and so we、yeah. we ended up buying a house and we built a recording studio. We used the money、wow. to to build a, a recording studio on the property,、um, and、uh, and then that became kind of like the home base for Pomplums for the next few years. I mean, you guys were doing really well, and and I presumably a lot of that money is was coming in from iTunes sales, but then I guess like around、uh, what two thousand ten two thousand eleven. Uh, Spotify comes along, and and of course with Spotify you can stream an unlimited amount of music、uh, for free. So what did that do for、uh, for your revenue? Yeah, the transition to streaming was really hard on the band. Our streaming revenue was you know a a tiny tiny fraction of the iTunes revenue, where people are. You know, paying a buck for a song. You know, with a stream, you get you know fractions of a penny for one stream, and it just it wasn't、uh, it wasn't one for one because the you know the, the user base wasn't there on Spotify yet. So we just it wasn't the volume wasn't making up for it, and so you know the 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 income started to evaporate, which was very scary because now at this point we had a mortgage. So around that time, like 2011, you know 2012, how are you making a living? Well, what was bizarre about it was, you know, our reach hadn't changed. The reach of of your YouTube audience and so on. Yeah, like we were growing. We were getting millions and millions of views and and more views. And then you know, enter Spotify, and suddenly, suddenly we're like up a creek in terms of revenue. And 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 what was amazing to me that you know I was watching this unfold over a period of you know a couple years. What blew my mind was like, wait a minute, I'm not doing anything differently as an artist. There is a system changing 
in front of me with, with that I'm not in control of. It's just these changing systems. And my artistry is yielding different results for, in, you know, with regard to my income. And that was like um, very frustrating to watch. And I look, I know businesses have to kind of like pivot and change and, and be innovative. And yet I found myself like having to do all this gymnastics you know, to, to, to keep up with the revenue stream. So I was, you know, selling hats and, and, and t-shirts and we were selling dongles like and, on a website. Yeah. And, and like, and then we would, you know, play some shows. And I remember like the whole time I was thinking like, is my value to the world, like a hat with a logo on it? Like, that's mm. not what I'm good at. That feels it was merch. You were just selling merch at concerts and stuff. Yeah. And, and that, and I didn't, yeah, it, it bugged me that we had to do that. Cause I, I yeah. felt like that's not what makes me special. I just wanted to be paid for, like, I loved iTunes because I could like be paid for my music, which is what, and and I was, yeah, that, so yeah. it was just one of those moments where we kind of realized that it, everything was changing and that, you know, three or four years from now would be completely different. Meantime, what is Natalie doing? I mean, are you guys, you're still living together. You've got this house um, and a mortgage and are you earning enough money to at least pay your bills? Yes, we are. Um, but we're also watching. It's coming a, a lot out of savings, right? So you're not revenue is not increasing. Uh, at that point, no revenue was not increasing. Re- revenue was was decreasing at that point. So so it was coming out of savings. But our um, our roommate um, who was living at the house did this uh, amazing thing, and uh, she was going to make an album, and she went onto this new website called Kickstarter, and did a thirty day thing. We had never heard of it. And I remember Mm. the night that she turned her computer around at the dinner table and showed us, I think she had made $12,000 or $13,000. To make the record. To make the record. And that really was what Kickstarter was started out for. Yeah. It started for artists. I mean, we had Perry on the show a couple years ago, Perry Chen. That was the point of Kickstarter. It was to help artists make music or records or whatever it was. Yep. And she did that. And she... Got thirteen thousand bucks and got a studio and got a mixing engineer and made a record. And what was so cool about it to me was it was her fans. Her fans mm. stepped up and wanted the record and paid her to make the record. And I just that just felt right and felt awesome. So I, I know that you and Natalie did um, did some solo projects in addition to to the work you did with Pomplamoose and. And I guess at some point she decides to do a Kickstarter too, right? To to raise money for her music. Yeah. And that, she ended up raising $104,000. Um, wow. How did she reach that many people? Because Pomplamoose had hundreds of thousands of subscribers and we were getting wow. millions of views. And so... But she, how did you drive those viewers to the to the Kickstarter? They just uploaded a YouTube video. Hey, everybody, I'm doing a Kickstarter. People went wow. bananas. Like, it, yeah. Over a hundred and four to make a record to make okay, a record. So, so you're thinking, wow, your mind's blown there. I, I couldn't, I was so happy for it. It was so awesome. And meantime, you're working on, on your own solo music too. And, and I guess you got interested in, in, in like EDM and, and that sort of genre. And you, I guess you eventually wrote a track that you were really proud of and you wanted to make a, a video out of it. And it, this was a, this was a track called Petals. Yeah. It, it was kind of Daft Punky, like technologic, you know, and, and I was I was listing out all of my guitar pedals. That was the, the, the lyric. The only lyric in the song was just a list of all the pedals that I used to to process guitar sounds. Like the brands or the types? The make. 
uh, the, the models and the makes. So like the first lyric is hog, pog, vox, wah, octave multiplexer, big man, memory muff, boss chromatic tuner. It was just That's like cool. a list. Yeah, of, I like that. Yeah, yeah, just like a list of pedals. Yeah. I'm I'm watching this video right now, and you're like you're like aggressive in this video. You're like <laughs> really like aggressively playing that guitar. Yeah, I mean, you look a little scary. <laughs> like if my kids saw you, they'd be a little scared of you, Jack. <laughs> Yeah, I'm raging. Yeah, that's yeah. what music's about. I should mention to people who aren't familiar with it, there are robots in the video. There's a conveyor belt of, you know, guitar pedals passing by. There's other robots. There's a spider robot. It's like in this kind of laboratory of robots. Uh, I imagine this is going to cost you quite a bit of money. It ended up costing ten grand. Uh, I didn't know that when I went into it. If mm. I had known that, I wouldn't have done it. But I yeah. didn't have a budget. I wasn't being strategic. I, I, at the time, I thought like, if I go deep on the business side, I'm not going to do it. Like I, because I, I'll be staring at numbers that don't make sense. And so I'm yeah. gonna just leave all that behind, and I'm just gonna do something crazy and creative. And so I decided not to budget not to think about that and not to deal with any of the kind of constraints there and so i ended up just spending like you know 100 bucks a day at home depot you know building the set and building rotating elevators and where did you build the set in the studio that natalie and i had built uh on the property and like i had to like (laughs) i was not a carpenter so i was like trying to learn how to frame a wall and like uh you know i was i had to figure out how to cut wood at angles i got a miter saw like i was just I was flailing. I mean, this thing, like, yeah. you know, I, I was just trying to trying to go and make it. But I was enjoying, like, it was really fun. It was just, uh, you know, I was trying to do it little by little, you know. Did you decide, like, all right, if I'm going to make this, I'm going to do this Kickstarter thing. I'm going to put up a video and, and ask people to contribute to to my, my project. I, I was considering it. The problem with that was I didn't want to kind of, you know, the, the, the sort of, the Kickstarter conceit was like, I'm going to do this big one thing and I need a bunch of money to pay for it. And that's not, I didn't want to right. do that. And I, I didn't, I didn't want to really force fit it like that. You weren't thinking of this as a one-off. You were thinking like, I need to steady um, like money to make projects, to do projects. Yeah. So how are you going to do it? That was the part of me that decided to not think of, think about that. Right. <laughs> And and it was terrifying. It was. I, I remember being pretty scared about that. And I also thought like, look, if I start being logical about this, I'm never going to make something that's great. It wasn't until about February of 2013 of tw- 2013 that I kind of it almost felt like waking up uh, after a dream and and, you know, watching my savings account go down basically to zero and then maxing out a couple credit cards and then feeling like I was almost like coming out of a dream or something wake yeah I felt like I was waking up and I was like suddenly very terrified about like what was on the other side and I I, the thought that I had in my mind was I'm gonna upload this video to YouTube it's gonna get a million views and I knew that that video would bring in maybe you know a hundred bucks from YouTube ads yeah and I actually got like sick. I got like nauseated thinking about like all of this work and energy and time. Yeah. The robots, the set, the credit cards, the draining of the savings account, like 
all of that adding up and thinking like, I'm going to put this thing out and I'm going to get paid a hundred dollars. And I, I was, it, it, I was angry, but I was also like, I couldn't believe that that was, that we were all just, that humans were just okay with this. That like, this is the, this is the system that we've designed for artists. It's like, yeah, you put up your, your thing that you spend your life on and then you get paid a hundred dollars in ad revenue and then you put up your next thing. And I remember like thinking about what the hell was going on where all these people who make things and put them online, um, are the, the, the economics of that failed to evolve with the distribution technology. So like the, the distribution happened first and the economic systems to support that didn't keep up. And so we were in this horrible phase where essentially artists are working for free. So what did you start to think about? I mean, this is February of 2013 and you're clearly like gears are turning in your head. And what do you, I mean, is there an idea starting to form in your mind about how to solve this? Yeah, I sat down at my kitchen table on a Sunday afternoon and I, and I, what I was thinking about was like, I, I like Kickstarter, but I want, I want to be paid um, every month because I need income <laughs> because I make stuff every month that's valuable to other people. And at the same time, you know, I, I was seeing other websites start to accept you know, like membership organizations, not necessarily websites, but like membership organizations like SFMOMA or, um, you know, KQED would do these pledge drives. And it happened, it, it wasn't, you know, you could, you had the option in many of those cases to set up a, a monthly payment. And so I was like, great. Like, I just want essentially that system. A pledge drive, like a pledge drive. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I sketched out this like website so that my fans can do this. And then, you know, of course, I, I was also looking at all these other YouTubers going through the same thing and podcasters and and news and everybody, anybody who makes stuff and puts it online was going through the same thing. I was like, oh, we, this should just be a this should be a thing like Kickstarter where anybody can set it up for themselves. Right. And uh, so, yeah, I, I sketched out. You, you physically sketched out like what the website would look like on paper. <laughs> I, I took out 14 pieces of printer paper for my printer. Actually, probably more than that because I didn't know it would be 14 pages, but it ended up being about 14 pages. And essentially, it was a recurring payment between a, a a fan and a creator, and yeah, there was a whole you know there's like a content feed and like a you know login page and a home page and and the whole thing. It was it was um, I s- am a terrible designer, <laughs> and so the you know looking back, I remember at it, these these pages fondly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was the worst. It sucked. Um, yeah, there's no way I could have done that by myself, and so. That's when I started like calling various people to see if they could build this for me. Including your former roommate, Sam. Yeah. I called him up and he, and I was like, so Sam, I've got this idea and I'm really excited about it, but I don't, I don't want to tell you, like, do we need to sign an NDA or something? Because you thought my idea is so good. Yeah, I, like, I cannot <laughs> talk to people about this yes, because they're going to steal it from me. I, I remember this too, because <laughs> this was like over the phone, right? And you didn't tell me the idea over the phone. So from my perspective, I was again, as I noted before, I was just excited to catch up with you, Jack. Like every time it was like, oh, I get to meet this celebrity who's who's just crushing it out on YouTube. So when we had arranged for the meeting, I wasn't so much in the uh, sort of mentality that there would be this amazing idea and and this is what I would be dedicated to. I was more like, I'm curious what you're thinking about and what you're up to, Jack. Yeah. But wait, but Sam, Sam was like, Jack, 
nobody cares about your idea. Don't. He was like, <laughs> we don't need to do an NDA. Nobody cares. Ideas are trash. Ideas are worthless. Like, we don't need to do that. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> He's saying to you what you now know, which is ideas are a dime a dozen. I, it doesn't mean that it's easy to find a good idea. It's not. But they are. It's execution that matters. It is only execution. Yeah. yeah. There are so many versions of Patreon that, that did not work. Yeah. And they were the same idea. All right. So you go to uh, San Francisco to meet and you and, and, and the idea that you had, Jack, was it to convince Sam to help you with this or was it just to kind of bounce the idea off of him? Oh, I wanted Sam to build it. I was in like hardcore pitch mode because other people had told me no or just didn't seem interested. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted Sam to do it. And he would he had just he was right about to launch this new project and he had gotten a TechCrunch article and he was, uh, it was, it was about to come out. So he said like, Hey, I can't meet till Thursday cause I'm launching this. Wow. Thing. Well, so what we, were you launching Sam? This was the photography site that I was working on. This is like your fifth or sixth <laughs> startup. Uh, yeah. You, I don't know if you can call them all startups, but a, a new project that I was interested in. And so I, I was like, Hey Jack, I, you know, I'm just busy. Maybe we can meet when this article finally comes out because I'll have launched it by that point. Um, and, and that's what we set the target date for. So I had gone up there, again, just expecting mainly to, to catch up with Jack. And I, maybe you said to like, yeah, get some feedback on the idea. That, that's how you pitched it mm-hmm. initially. Because I remember being surprised when the, the switch went off and you started selling me on this. And you were, you were really good, Jack. Um, <laughs> I do recall like you just talking about the, both the problem uh, that you and, and other artists were dealing with today. Um, and especially, you know, that resonated for me because I, I had seen how successful you had been uh, as an artist. I assumed you were already like, you know, dancing away on your yacht doing fine. So this is this is really interesting uh, hearing this from you. And, and what what did he what do you remember him telling you about it? So you, you convinced him not to sign that you didn't have to sign an NDA. No, you didn't bring an NDA, uh, did you, Jack? I, I didn't see one. I remember. No, I was, yeah. no NDA. All right. Yeah, I mean, this is your roommate, Jack. Yeah. This is the guy you lived with for three I years. I know. So much hubris. I I'm mean, like so ashamed I, of he's that. He's going to steal this from you? Dumb yeah. th- I know. It's so dumb. <laughs> All right. So you uh, are sitting there in this coffee house. And uh, what does he say to you, Sam? What is? How does he describe it? Yeah. So I, the things that came together for me, and, and now we're looking at about almost eight years ago, but like it's kind of how Jack mentioned that Kickstarter was uh, a thing already. And, and there were a lot of campaigns that were really successful on Kickstarter. But what resonated here was the idea that uh, you were helping to support the individual versus a particular project. And for me, the reason that that resonated, well, first, as someone who cared a lot about art in my past, but could never make it a career, I followed a lot of these people on on YouTube. Um, there were folks at this time that were relatively big. One in particular, I remember that I talked to Jack about, uh, Kina Granis, who sort of wrote very personal music um, and, and very simple music. And I remember thinking in my head as Jack was pitching this, I would totally just give her money. I would just open my wallet and and (laughs) give her whatever on an ongoing basis if it allowed her to keep producing her work. And I could just see this emotion um, being shared by all these other YouTube audience members. And so that's the idea clicked for me as soon as Jack pitched this to me. uh, Jack Jack remembers this too. The, The day of, I'm like, we're starting this now. And don't tell anyone else wow. about this idea. Don't. So you're saying to him now, make everybody sign an NDA. No, no, don't even sign an NDA. Just, just keep this don't to ourselves. Talk, talk this it. is it. We're okay, gonna, gonna do. We're it. gonna go dark. Yeah. We're going dark. So I'm staring at the email right now that I sent Sam on March 10th. I just pulled it up. March 10th, 2013. 
and it's just kind of like a summary of our agreement. And uh, I think that's kind of what I thought it was going to be. Um, like, here's what I'm like. I'm, I'll just yeah. read one sentence of this. You agree to be. So we're talking about the agreement. Here's what I'm agreeing to. Here's what you're agreeing to. And um, and one of the lines is like, you agree to be co-founder and CTO of Patreon. You agree to build and maintain the site as it is laid out in the wireframes. <laughs> you will work on all technical and program uh, and programming oriented aspects of the company. Did you pass um, this by a lawyer, Jack? Gonna, or was like, this just, this was your legalese? No, I just was writing decree. you an email. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like. And, and did yeah. you guys have a conversation about how you would split it, the company? Did you say, was it just going to be 50-50? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's. In this email, uh, we agree to become 50-50 partners in Patreon. So, I mean, win-win, right? Because, um, I mean, you get a technical co-founder. And Sam, you get this guy who has kind of a pretty big platform already. Absolutely, yeah. I, I was I was stoked. Um, and a friend. I, I think, yeah, yeah. That email, which I did, I did read through. I think I just wrote back to you, Jack. What is it? Uh, all caps or something? No, so I wrote this like long email. At the end, I said like, I know I said this before, but I just want to stress how important it is that we communicate with each other about all aspects of the business and our wow. relationship. As long as we're not hiding anything from each other, as long as we're telling each other something's wrong, we are greatly reducing the chance of hurting our friendship. I want you to feel 100% okay with talking to me about your like the company finances, your interest in the company, your ideas, your feelings, anything you like. This will lead to a strong partnership. That's nice. I mean, it's basically like, hey, we're gonna we put our friendship, you know, first here. Yeah. You know, it was like this. I thought it was kind of a nice thing. And then Sam writes back, all caps. Awesome. I agree to all of this. Okay, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> when we come back in just a moment, how Patreon launched with just three musicians. One of them was Jack, and one was Natalie, and then why, slowly, other artists started to get on board, first by the dozens, and then by the thousands. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M committed to protecting healthcare workers globally. 3M employee Chris knows that healthcare workers, like his daughter, may need to get up close to provide patient care. He's working hard to direct high-performing personal protective equipment to hospitals and hotspots so she and nurses like her can be protected while caring for their patients. Hear their story at 3M.com slash improving lives. 3M science applied to life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Don Julio Tequila. Don Julio Gonzalez didn't just farm agave. He worshipped them. He harvested each agave individually, plant by plant, only handpicking the agaves at optimum maturity. And his legacy lives on today through his exceptional tequila, Don Julio, a life devoted to tequila making. Please drink responsibly. Don Julio Tequila, 40% alcohol by volume, Copyright 2021, imported by Diageo Americas, New York, New York. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So it's March of 2013, and Jack Conti and his former college roommate Sam Yam have decided to launch a new crowdfunding site that will let fans pay a few dollars a month to sustain their favorite budding musicians, podcasters, writers, and artists. And Sam is so excited about Jack's idea that literally the very day they have that first meeting in San Francisco, 
Sam goes home to work on the coding. I started working uh, probably more passionately than ever on, on any other project. Uh, it, for me, it, it felt like a race. And I was just, I even had this fear, I remember, that if we didn't move fast on this, someone else was going to do it and we were wow. going to regret that. And for people who don't understand how coding works, like, what's the first step? Like, I mean, it's, you're essentially, it's like, if, if it's like a bunch of Lego bricks, you start to build the, the, the base level of, of the building. Yeah, uh, coding is is what you do at some point, but what you're really putting together are a whole bunch of like designs and photoshops and thinking through the psychology of like why a user would do this and that. And so I think the the way uh, at least I approached this particular project was sort of laying out all the main journeys uh, of users and then painstakingly moving pixels around. Uh, to get it to a level where you felt, okay, this is an experience that I think is going to work. And it wasn't going to cost a lot of money to get it off the ground? Uh, no, I, I mean, I, I had launched a number of projects before. It was probably going to be a, a few hundred to, to thousand dollars. And I think we were splitting. I, I think it was in that email too. A few hundred dollars to a thousand, a few thousand dollars, you're saying? Yeah. That was it? Yeah. Why was it so cheap? Is it because, uh, is it because normally the biggest fees would go towards a software engineer and Sam, you were basically the software engineer. I think this was the case. You know, I grew up in the area with startups where, where you had to uh, rent hardware and set up your servers and co-locations. But by this point, several years after that, uh, you could launch an entire service off in the cloud. And that began with, you know, the yeah. Facebook yeah. Yeah, apps and, and, and iPhone apps. And so by this era, you could launch very cheaply and then sort of scale up as needed. And for right. us, you know, our the dreamland that I had in mind around what we were going to do was uh, Jack obviously had had a huge plan to launch to his whole audience. And on top of that, he had this whole network of artists and creators. And we were going to be launching on day one with just millions of, uh, of fans and, and artists talking about how uh, you could support them on Patreon. And so I wasn't even thinking about how we needed money. And that was through, that would be, Jack, through the Pomplamoose web, um, YouTube channel, essentially? Yeah. In other words, we were going to, we were going to, not Pomplamoose, it was going to be my personal uh, YouTube channel, which was, you know, where I was uploading all that electronic stuff. And so I was, I, uh, yeah, the plan was like, I'll put up a YouTube video on my YouTube channel, send my fans over to Patreon, and that's kind of how we'll start. We also, you know, I, I, I did want to launch with a bunch of other artists, as Sam mentioned, so we... We made a list of like 40, 40 or so creators that you knew. to call up. No, these are not like world famous creators, right? These are just yeah. people who have like pretty strong local small followings. Folks who I thought like, hey, you're in the same boat that I'm in right now. And um, let's like, let's do this. Let's I, like, I think this could be valuable to you. And so, yeah, we made an Excel spreadsheet with all, with those folks and I found their contact info and um, reached out to all 40 of them and uh and and all 40 of them said no all 40 of them said no all 40 of them said no they were like no i don't feel comfortable asking people to pay me money crickets yeah were you surprised i was surprised but i wasn't um i i didn't think it mattered i thought like well let's do it anyway and people will come around they'll they'll come around to this so i wasn't Hmm. i wasn't like bummed about it i just 
I thought, okay, let's let's do it ourselves. Let's launch with me. Yeah. And and my roommate also wanted to launch. Lauren O'Connell was one of the first mm-hmm. three creators on Patreon. And Natalie wanted to launch too. So the Your three girlfriend. of us, yeah, my, my girlfriend yeah. at the time. So we, we launched with just the three of us on day one of Patreon. And and the idea was you would take this this video for Pedals, a song that you're working on, and that's where you would premiere it. You would premiere this video on YouTube or whatever to get people to to go to Patreon um, and support this video. Yeah, I at the end of the Pedals video, I put a vlog where I told people about the idea. And I said, hey, I'm building this new thing, and I don't think it's just going to help me. I think it could help a lot of people. And check it out and let me know what you think and if you're if you're up for it join me on this on this journey here so from the time that you guys met on march 6 2013 to the time you launched how long was that we launched in may i think jack in may yeah. wow yeah so really quickly yeah we didn't have all the pieces there when we launched <laughs> but we had it was good we enough. had enough yeah we couldn't for example um <laughs> we couldn't process all the payments at that time yet I, I hadn't hooked any of that up we could accept your credit card and so that would get uh, saved you know very securely by the way because we were working at stripe but we hadn't built any of the logic to actually handle the the processing of the funds and and what did you ask for jack in in the video you said hey whatever you can do just to to, to fund my work um please contribute i think i had four tiers yep a dollar five dollars ten dollars and then the night before i thought screw it i'm gonna put up a hundred dollar tier no one's gonna buy it but i'll just do that um where you can kind of do a one-on-one skype session with me and i'll hang out with you and a bunch of people signed up for the hundred dollar tier a bunch of people signed up for the five and the ten dollar tier the average payment per patron was around seven bucks um which that really blew my mind i was thinking maybe people will give me a dollar for youtube videos but the fact that on average people would give me seven bucks i uh, yeah couldn't believe that and what was the like what did you offer people if you gave a dollar a month you would have access to what if you gave five dollars if you gave 10 if you gave 100 what what would you get so at one dollar you got access to my patron only stream you got first dibs on concert tickets at $3, you got access to my patron-only stream, first concert, uh, first dibs on concert tickets, and video tutorials about audio production. I, I would just make these little extra tutorials and give folks access to them. And then uh, $10 was a, a Google Hangout once a month with me and all $10 patrons. And then the $100 was the Skype sessions. So how much did you, did you get fans to commit to paying you per month? Within the first couple of weeks, I passed $5,000 a, a month. month. Wow. And then soon after that, it was, yeah, it was even more. And at the time I was making maybe two videos a month. So, you know, suddenly, like very suddenly within two months, I went from draining my savings account to making over $100,000 a year for my solo career. And Jack, did you envision continuing your career as a musician and, you know, continuing making music and, and building your fan base in addition to doing this? Or was, were you not quite, was that not quite fully thought, thought through yet? It was not strategic. <laughs> um, there wasn't a five-year plan. There wasn't a strategy deck. It was just solving a problem. Um, hmm. And uh, and so I don't know that I 
that I had a, a clear vision about how the next year was going to go. I knew that we needed to build this thing. I knew that it was going to be a way that that artists could make money. I did think it could scale and help a lot of folks. I didn't know how much work that was going to be. When you had, you know, you reach out to 40 people to, to sign up and all of them said no. And it's just you, your roommate and your girlfriend who are the only people on the site. How did you attract other people? When we launched, and, and this is how Patreon ended up growing. When we launched, I went onto my YouTube channel. I told all my fans about Patreon. And I said, hey, go to this website. And of course, creators follow creators. So some hmm. of the people who watched my video were creators themselves. Right. And when they landed on my Patreon page and they saw this random middle-of-the-road YouTuber making six figures, they had that same mind-blow moment that I had had two years before when Lauren launched her Kickstarter and they saw a new revenue model for professional creativity. And then those folks launched on Patreon and then they did the same thing. They went onto YouTube and they went onto their podcasts and they went onto, you know, they, they wrote on their websites and then that cycle just repeated. Yeah. And that's actually responsible for most of Patreon's growth is that viral product cycle. And, and was the business model that you had kind of set in stone from the get-go? Because initially I think it was like you would take, uh, Patreon would take 10%. So 5% uh, platform fee and then 5% uh, payment processing fee. And did you kind of do the math and and the financial projections and kind of come to the conclusion that that was the best way for you guys to reach profitability? <laughs> Jack, Jack, did we do the math? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, there's, there was zero projections. There was zero... No spreadsheets. No. no spreadsheets, no math. There there was yeah, there was there was none of that. I mean again, it's just very different than it is now. Now it's a you know, now we have, you know, FPNA and and finance teams and we're forecasting right. out multiple years and right. but that's yeah, back then, no, we didn't have any of that. We didn't think about any of that. We were just making this thing. Our, yeah. our first pitch deck, uh, which I don't even believe we had anymore because I, I remember building it on a web page, uh, just had all these emails that we had received uh, from artists and, and fans about how exciting the idea was. So we weren't really right. thinking about like the all the viability of the business at that point still. And then I guess a month after you guys launch, you decide, all right, now let's go get some money. And, and Sam, you had already been through this process. You had already... You'd been through the process of raising some money for your previous startup. Yeah, I actually was pretty optimistic and excited about uh, this fundraising process. Again, this came back from the emails and the feedback and, and the creators and the fans uh, in a way that, again, several years of me trying to build things had never seen this sort of passion uh, around in a movement or an idea. And so, you know, at the time, again, I, I'm naive, even looking back, uh, it felt like in the bag. And so we, we started off and we started uh, pitching to investors. And how, how much money were you guys able to raise for the, for the first round? At the time, the, the, um, the co I think at that round, the company was valued at $6 million. And so we ended up raising that first round ended up being uh, $2.1 at a $6 million valuation. So it was, you know, about a third. Right. And because, uh, you know, this is an important conversation to have because a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show. And, and we've had founders on the show who have said, biggest mistake of my life. You know, Tristan Walker will say, I should never have raised money. Uh, other founders said, who say, I, it was so important. I'm so glad I did it. I got support and guidance. Um, and I couldn't have built this without going to venture capitalists and, and taking the money. W was it absolutely necessary? Could you have done Patreon without raising money? I don't believe so, Jack. I, I think we needed that team 
um, uh, in, in the early days as we were building it out. Uh, plus, I think uh, the partners that, that we ended up working with uh, were very much aligned with the spirit of our, our mission. And we haven't talked a lot about that, but at the time, uh, this idea that we were trying to get artists and creators paid, that ended up filtering out a, a bunch of various investors who just didn't even want to touch the space of mm. uh, music or, or art in particular. Yeah, I think it was really important. Um, I, I don't think Patreon, not I don't think, Patreon would not have gotten close to where it is today without that. I mean, even from that first day, Patreon started growing a lot. And, um, you know, we needed to hire people to answer emails and um, and help build features and scale the company. And we would not have been able to afford that without raising money. All right. So you guys raised $2.1 million. And uh, what do you do with that? Do you get an office? Do you get? Uh, do you start hiring people? What What do you start doing with it? The first we became roommates again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, we got yes, a, we... a home office in, in Noe in San Francisco. We got an office mm-hmm. in Noe Valley. Yeah, it was a two bedroom apartment, and we yeah. moved in together. And uh, at that point, we um, hired uh, Tyler Palmer, who was the first employee, and he hired a couple folks. Cole and Tony, who started building out uh, the basically the, like the artist relations and the marketing and the um, and and the operations customer service side of the business. Yeah, it was just our bedrooms, and then it was attached, yeah, out into the kitchen where we set up a few desks, and they would come in every day, and Jack and I would wake up and walk out into the office. So initially, the first I don't know, I mean, you're getting more and more people to sign up, but from what I understand, like. Even with the 10% fee, the processing and platform fees, uh, it wasn't covering your costs. Yeah, no, I mean, we're, we were not profitable. Um, I mean, 5% of, of the 10%, by the way, what wasn't didn't go to us, right? It, for you guys. Yeah, it was a for the pay stripe and whoever was, yeah. Exactly. So the 5% going to you guys wasn't much. Not a lot, yeah. Which is, again, we because we had that business model with a really low percentage which which came from this idea of not wanting to be another wedge between creators and their fans right so we wanted to to have a low uh rake and so yeah even you know when the company was processing a hundred thousand bucks that's only five grand for the company so i mean how i mean because you had a runway 2.1 million dollars and that was going to run out eventually how long did that last you before you had to go back out and raise more money. We were cheap. I mean, again, Jack, even after we fundraised, Jack didn't take any salary. Actually, I don't think I took any salary on the first uh, round either until until after our second round. Um, and we, we we didn't spend much. That's why we rented a, a home as opposed to an actual office. So we didn't end up running out of that uh, money. We, we had more than, I think, a, a year of runway left as we saw the business ramping up and then went on to raise, a, I guess, a much more serious uh, Series A round. That was in 2014? In 20, yeah, 2014, we raised the, the $15 million round. Meanwhile, Jack, um, you are the CEO of the company. And, and I'm curious how you kind of figured out how to do that job um, and because you were I mean you're a musician and you've got this part of you that I'm assuming you really want to pursue like how did you like first of all wh- at what point did you were you able to say okay I can't I actually cannot pursue music full-time like I can't like I I kind of have to make this 
a side gig. So first of all, it was a slow process. I think the desire to not take salary really came from a place of wanting to be a creator <laughs> and wanting to continue to make art and videos and music. And a couple years into the company, it became very clear that I, I needed it to be my full-time focus, which was a really, really painful, tough thing. Because not only was this for me, not only did this decision affect me, but my wife, you know, we were partners in crime on this rock band that was kicking ass and getting millions of views and touring around the United States for big rooms. And like we were living the dream as creators. And not only was I abandoning my career, I was abandoning her by choosing to to, to focus on Patreon and the moment where I basically stopped working on Pomplamoose and took a salary as CEO, um, that was a tough moment because I felt I was one of those kids in my 20s who's like, I am not going to be an artist in my 20s and grow up to be a business person in my 30s. That is not the kind of person that I am. I'm going to stay an artist in my life. Um, and, and then I found myself running a business. Yeah. Um and 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 so when you were i mean like a year into this um you had no no kind of no standards right like you didn't have you know any particular rules around who could join um what happened in in 2014 that changed that um that 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 kind of was like a shot in the arm i mean where you guys were like wait a minute we need to have some kind of standards here the the thing that caused the debate uh, was a, a website called 8chan that launched on Patreon. Yeah. And wow. they were using Patreon to fund the development of the site. And you started to look at the site and you saw crazy, crazy stuff. Yeah, I mean, there, there was, you know, uh, sexualized depictions of minors and f- things that we just from a values perspective it felt like uh that we should there should be something in place to to stop this from from happening so what did you do well i I recall this distinctly because uh looking back i'm sort of on the wrong side of history of this but i remember uh feeling like hey we had not sort of done this would be our first outright ban which we had never done before and it was a line that i was very concerned about I even ended up uh, on the call with, with the, I guess, the founder of HN at the time. And he lives in like the Philippines or something. I That's think. right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in my mind and, and through, you know, the conversation with him too, the, what was going on was uh, he had built out a platform that was like very heavily emphasizing free speech and he wanted yeah. to take down uh, the things that were breaking the law. At least this is how he represented to me and that's why I was sympathetic to it at the time. And I was concerned about our ask of creators to, uh, if they didn't have the intention to be uploading these, you know, I agree with like just terrible things, um, like how we could still support them uh, in terms of uh, the business that they were building or, or the art that they were trying to get shared. Yeah. I mean, this is really interesting because this is really the beginnings of certain people weaponizing the First Amendment and this idea of free speech, really turning it into a weapon. 
and turning it against what it's designed to do, which is to um, you know prevent tyranny. But but posting photos of children, uh, or or even you know horrendously vicious and dangerous conspiracy theories is not what that's about. But but it's easy to mani- I imagine it would have been easy for him to manipulate somebody like you with the argument that it's about free speech. Yes, that's how the argument began, and then there were other things that we had to talk to him about too, right? Um, there was. There are communities that were sort of thriving. They're spreading hate. And so it, it started us really going down this path of like when there is real world harm um, mm. and, and people getting hurt, uh, what, is, what is our role and responsibility? And I think that's where we started figuring out that we, we wanted healthy communities and, and we would have to lay out these guidelines in a very specific way. So how did you begin to write them down? What did you do? Did you like bring in um, a lawyer or outside advisors or I mean, because... I imagine both of you guys had really good intentions. Like if I'm in a company, I'm going to be sitting there going, guys, we cannot do this. This is wrong. At the same time, you've got investors. You've got to make money. I'm sure the 8chan community was probably generating significant revenue for you. So, yeah, the investors are are super helpful here. Besides just the money, they connected us to people who had worked on these types of problems before. Reddit had dealt with stuff like this. Facebook. Facebook had to deal with stuff like this still does and still does and uh and we got connected through those investors to um to a fellow who had uh wishes to to remain anonymous even to this day he built these very massive um content policy and and trust and safety and enforcement systems and um he worked with us for a period of two months to draft the first version of what became Patreon's content policy, which was turned out to be about 40 pages was the first version of it. And to tell you the truth, that was one of the most horrific two months of, of my life. Was, Why? Well, because the internet is a, can be a dark place and there are really horrific things out there. And in that two months, we had to explore all of those cases, real in the world on Patreon. And we had to have some very deep philosophical conversations about what are we okay with supporting and and what are we not. Um, and then content policy is like anything else at a company. It's it's a it's a living, breathing thing that you iterate on, and it changes over time. But that first mm. version. Um, you know, and the creation of that first version was a very difficult two months. Difficult because it, it you had to make specific choices about what you would accept and what you wouldn't accept? There are two reasons. The first was Sam and I, this was one of the first moments where we had fundamental disagreements about mm. the business. And so it was challenging our relationship in a way that we hadn't dealt with before. Is that fair, Sam? Like we, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, like we we had to like have really intense values discussions where we weren't on the same page, and that was that was really hard. And in particular, too, we hadn't come up with even a framework for how we would get through these decisions. We were bringing in. I remember there were all these sessions where we would just bring in everyone from the company, and there were all these different like disparate uh, opinions, and we couldn't figure out how to put them together. Uh, because people were very divided, even internally. Uh, and, and I think all of this just became very exhausting for both of us. So how did you, what did you come up with? What was the policy you came up with? The 
the end state of this project, working with this outside person that helped us, you know, write the the first version of it was was this content policy, which was a rules based framework that gets to a level of specificity that I think most people are probably unaware of. Like, for example, people say, you know, I've heard people say you you can't define porn. You just kind of know it when you see it. Um, I beg to differ. (laughs) You can define porn. We have spent quite a lot of time defining porn in way more detail than probably anyone wants to hear about or go into. Um, And then do that across everything. Weapons manufacturing, hate speech. What is harassment? You know, the output of this content policy was rigorous definition Hmm. around what we meant by each of those things and as many edge cases as we could think of. That's how much detail you want to go into. Yeah, I think the perspective I always liked, I don't remember uh, how we landed on this, was that, you know, we're facilitating art. Art should, in some sense, be bridging a lot of these divides and and not increasing them uh, like some communities would be doing. And so guided with that, uh, I think, you know, we're constantly, as Jack noted, it was an evolving document. But uh, at least we we sort of knew directionally where we wanted to be. But I mean, you guys because of this policy, did alienate some of your better-known podcasters like Sam Harris, who was on Patreon, and he decided to stop using it because he he didn't support the policy. He said, you know, that that that, that it violated free speech. And, 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 and like you, presumably you talked to Sam about this when he decided to leave. Well, I talked with Sam many times. You know, he's such an incredible thinker. I respect him so much. And, you know, I was very clear about our logic and um, and why, you know, why we have to have a content policy. Um, and I think these things are complicated if you're not inside a company. I think, look, th- things have over the last few years, it's become very, very clear, I think, to, to people why companies need to have a content policy. But at the time, his reasoning was the First Amendment should do it. Um, that's that should be the policy. And uh and yeah, I mean, we we disagreed. So and and we weren't going to, um, you know, we weren't going to change our minds to to keep two or three creators um, as as painful as that was. But again, like I am really proud of our content policy, and I think I think more folks, you know, should should do that. Um, especially like emerging tech companies. Um, I, I wish more folks did that. Um, so, so look, it's a, it's a bummer. And, and I, I, I wish Sam was raising money on Patreon. His pitch was mm. awesome and straight from the heart and right on. Um, but sometimes, you know, you have values-based disagreements like that. And, uh, and that's what happens. Putting out any idea into the world, especially a, a platform like this is going to create friction, right? Even though your intentions are good and by and large, it serves people well. There are going to be critics. That's normal. That's part of the process. Our show gets criticized. Um, and you have been criticized uh, for a, a variety of reasons. Let me just start with one of them. Um, a critique is that actually almost nobody on the platform makes um, a serious living. Uh, there was a, an article that came out in 2017. I think it was called No One Makes a Living on Patreon. You know, it said something like, you know, 80% of the creators who shared what they earn make less than the federal minimum wage. Yeah, I'm not sure that's criticism as as much as just as like a a, a statement. Uh, Perhaps it was meant as criticism, but like Patreon, I think, is solving a very specific, clear problem. One of the problems it's not solving is um, the demand curve. 
we can't solve supply and demand. Um, we're, we're also not yeah. solving helping everybody uh, find, you know, new fans. Yeah. Th- these are really hard problems that other companies do way better than us right now, actually. Um, and we were very narrow in our focus of what problem are we trying to solve. And the, and the very specific problem that Patreon set out to solve early was, um, so you're a creator, you're reaching millions of people, and you're getting paid 100 bucks a month in ad revenue. Great. Patreon is the platform for you. Um, but if you're not reaching a, a million people, or, or it doesn't have to be a million, but if you don't have an audience, um, actually, Patreon doesn't work so well for you at all. And so I, I think it's totally fair to like point that out. And I actually think it's important to be honest about that. Like We want to be honest with that. If somebody expects right. that they're going to come onto Patreon without having found a thing that that you know resonates with people um you know that's that's not a problem that our product solves and and i actually yeah. if we were to try to solve that it would be incredibly defocusing and i think we'd end up doing worse at, at our mission <laughs> um and at the end of the day you know the the thing is there are now tens and tens of thousands of, of creators who are you know making a lot of money on the platform and and building media companies and and leasing office space and hiring teams and now there are creators making you know millions of dollars a year on patreon so um but we're not you know we're not going to solve the product market fit problem for folks so one of the challenges that, that you guys have had to deal with um over the years is how to roll out uh changes to your revenue model because inevitably users, you know, they don't like it when they get used to a certain system and it changes. But a few years ago, you you, you kind of ran into some trouble when you announced that you were you were going to shift the the way that that processing fees were were being handled. So I guess instead of the the creators paying the processing fees, the patrons would have to pay them on top of a of the subscription fees that they were already paying, and uh, and and that caused a backlash, right? There were, yeah, the, so the, that, you, you were very kind about it. Thank you. <laughs> Describing the backlash about patrons paying fees. That was the worst product rollout in the history of the company. And it was, I mean, backlash doesn't begin to describe how it felt from the inside. I mean, there was a tweet at me every two to three seconds for probably 72 hours, wow. um, you know, equating me to... Uh, the devil. I mean, it was yeah. it was I, it was very uh, anxiety <laughs> inducing. <laughs> um, um, it cannot be fun. It, it's not. It's no. It's it's the opposite of fun. Um, but but we learned so much um, about you know our community and um, product development and. Um, and communication and uh, and and how to talk to our creators. And so the next time we we rolled out something like that, you know, we literally talked to over a thousand creators first, which we did not do that time. Um, we did A/B tests, and like we got the data, and the data showed that actually it was a great thing. But that's different than talking to a person and hearing them react to it and hearing their feelings about it, like. <laughs> You know, it, you can't just disassociate that from the product experience. Have you become profitable yet, Sam? Are we talking about profitability? Yeah. <laughs> um, We're... I, I'll, I'll, yeah. So no, Patreon's not profitable. It's tracking toward profitability. 
we're burning money every month, but uh, actually the business is like very healthy. The financials are are very healthy. And and, and to help the business, um, I, I guess last year you rolled out a, a new payment plan um, for, for the creators, which is a tiered plan. So they, depending on like the level of service they get, they, they pay either like five or eight or 12% of the income that, that they get from the site. Is that right? Yeah. This new plan... The, the, the three creator plans that we rolled out have amazing adoption. Creators um, are, are, you know, opting into those, those uh, more feature-rich products. And, hmm. um, and so it's, it actually has, like, changed the business. So, like, we're going to keep adding features to those. So, I mean, if we're going to keep building out the product and building more things. Um, but but I, I think very, you know, very clearly, like, yes, this is this worked. This allows us to like scale and be healthy and be a long term meaningful company. And how many how many um, creators are on the platform now? Hundreds of thousands, right? It's a little over 200,000. Yeah. Who are getting paid. I mean, I imagine that that this covid era has been uh, a, a, a blessing for I mean, it's a horrible situation, of course. But all of a sudden you've got people at home creators who cannot tour, who can't play in coffee houses, and you're not, you know, it's not like stadium-level bands that are going on Patreon, but but people who might play to 100 people, now they can't do it. Have you had a massive spike in people onboarding? I mean, yes, it's it's been, it's been um, wild to see. I mean, the pandemic has been such a brutal thing in the world, and it's, it is so weird to think about, uh, you know, it is true that it has benefited Patreon, and and that dichotomy is very strange for me. Like I, th- I think the the way I'm I'm trying to think about it is like I'm glad something like Patreon exists to mm. catch creative people right now in the, in a moment like this. So f- for example, AEG Live Nation both canceled global touring operations. So yeah. very suddenly there are these creators who are looking forward at a year or two of you know touring and hundreds of thousands or millions or tens of millions of dollars of touring revenue that evaporated over the period of a week yeah and so the the you know the level of launches on patreon are what you could expect in a situation like that not only creators you know launching on the platform you know triple digit growth month over month and in podcasting and music and things like that but um but also patrons like stepping up and really doing their part um i think a lot of people are looking for a way to help right now Mm. and and patrons are too and there's like a really easy way that they can when you guys think about um you know this path and where you are today um how much do you think that it has to do with with your intelligence skill hard work and 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 how much of it is just luck i i mean my opinion on this is largely like if you're fortunate enough to to be to fall in uh in order to um build as part of a, a community that is this excited about an idea uh, i felt like if it wasn't us it was going to be someone else and so in a lot of ways uh at least personally i i feel like very appreciative of sort of the you could call it luck too uh, of the timing and and the opportunity uh to to do this i also think just to to the general point of your, your question like we wouldn't have been able to make it if we didn't work uh, extremely hard from the get-go. Yeah. You know, I, I've done a, a thousand things in my life. Nine 
you know, 199 of them haven't worked. Patreon was one that happened to work. Um, was I smarter? Or did I make better decisions with Patreon? Like, no. <laughs> I mean, it just was like, there's a lot of happenstance and circumstance and, and you know, Sam and I killed ourselves to like, to, 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 you know, do it, of course. But I love this attitude too, because it, it, puts us in a place where I think both of us feel an immense sense of responsibility and that we have to be great stewards, right? Of both creators and, and the opportunity and, and even our teams um, that are helping us along uh, on, on this mission. Uh, and I think we take that very seriously. And by the way, one thing um, that we haven't talked about, which is like quality, like how serious are you guys about the quality of, of the stuff that's on Patreon? I mean, because I mean, you've you've been on YouTube, right? I and mean, there's obviously there's there's great stuff on YouTube. Yeah. There's a lot of really awful, mediocre stuff on YouTube as well. Um, I mean, does it does it bother you if someone uses Patreon to put like I don't know, like terrible music or terrible art or whatever out into the world? Like, or, or do you just n- not care? Oh God, I I mean, we would never ju- like judge the quality of somebody's art and have that be an input into a decision whether to include them in, in Patreon like that, that we would, of course, never, ever do anything like that. I actually find it so awesome, too, if there's something so tiny niche that only like a handful of peoples passionately care about, right? I feel like that, in effect, is sort of how we've piggybacked off this whole movement on the internet that allows any community to find within an interest group some set of folks who care so deeply about that so yeah like jack said like why why in the world would we ever care about that i mean we the 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 beautiful thing about the internet is that suppose you're a total weirdo (laughs) like suppose Mm. you make stuff that like in your life in your town nobody in your town likes your music nobody likes it like only one in a thousand people like what you have to make um like Great. On the internet, there are literally millions of people who will like your stuff if your ratio is one in a thousand. You can get millions of fans and make hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. Like, that is... I love that about the internet. I think that's such a special weird wonderful time in in the development of, of humanity to, to, to be connected like that. That's Jack Conti and Sam Yam, co-founders of Patreon. What is the weirdest, most niche Patreon site creator that you've seen? Like just the most odd niche thing that you can think of. One of my favorite examples of this was just like, I don't get ASMR at all. <laughs> I don't yeah. get it. Like it doesn't you work for me. You don't get ASMR. <laughs> you don't get it. Not, not at all. It doesn't work. No, my brain is not tingling right now. I'm getting the tinglies, guys. I don't know what you're, you're talking about. Yeah. How are you? You have ASMR people on on there? Yeah, it does really well. And people pay for it monthly? Oh, yeah. Maybe I should get on it. This gig doesn't work out for me. I'm doing ASMR Patreon. Don't quit your day job. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to write to us, our email address is hibt at npr.org. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at How I Built This or I'm at Guy Raz. Also on Instagram, you can follow me at Guy.Raz. This episode was produced by Rachel Faulkner with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. 
Thanks also to Liz Metzger, Dareth Gales, J.C. Howard, Julia Carney, Neva Grant, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Farah Safari. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR. The world was shocked when pro-Trump extremists stormed and seized the U.S. Capitol. Throughout this tumultuous era, the NPR Politics Podcast has been there every day explaining and making sense of the news. We'll be doing that through the final days of the Trump administration as we all try to understand how this moment happened and what will come next. What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. NPR's How I Built This. Listen now.